0: Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Summerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Larry Birdbacher. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. All right, take your Bibles out. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, do you get a little dizzy watching those uh, roller coasters going by? We'll start Romans chapter 9 next week. It's about all about the uninverted life in Christ Jesus and what that looks like. I love roller coasters. I love the bigger the better, upside down steep drops, just go crazy, get the hands up in the air and uh, have a ball. But anyway, we're in Romans 8 today. This is the crescendo of the book of Romans. You are at the high point, you are at the pinnacle right now. It is just that this is such an exciting place in the Word of God. So let's stand together and we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 8. We'll look at verses 18 to 27 to start with today and then make our way as well through the rest of the chapter this morning. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, who hopes for what is already has. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with the will of God. Father, we love you so much. You are such an incredible, awesome God today. I thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have in you this morning. I thank you for the power of your word. Now open it up to our hearts and minds, I pray, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Turn to someone, say, get ready for the ride, and then you may be seated. Anybody in here have a problem with evil? I do, and you know, I'm not just talking about personal evil, and, and I have problems with that, but I'm talking about evil in the world. I think probably one of the things, the hardest thing to defend when we talk to that agnostic out there, or that atheist out there, is if, if there is a God, how can there be so much evil in the world? How can there be so much pain, so much heartache, how can there all that be, how can a good, all-powerful God allow evil to continue? And, and the suffering and the sorrow at times becomes unbearable. And I think in our own life, when we go through those times of suffering, we might in our minds begin to question God. God, why is this happening to me? Why do we see this tragedy all around? Romans, you're going to find probably the best, best treatise on the answer to that question right here in Romans chapter 8. And Paul says the bottom line is all of creation is groaning right now. There is a groaning time that we are in that is going on. Uh, There is disease, there is disaster, there is death, there is decay. All these things are happening. Nevertheless, the apostle Paul says these things are minor when compared to the glory that God has for us. It's like a speed bump in the road, like a little blip on the radar screen. Our lives are but a vapor. They're here for a moment and then they're gone, but we are with Christ for all eternity. And he says even the sufferings, even the present sufferings that we go through are nothing compared to the glory that God has in store for his children. Few people in enjoyed a more intimate relationship with God than the Apostle Paul. You read his letters, you can see the closeness, the intimacy that, that, that exuded from Paul. Few people experienced the joy that the Apostle Paul wrote about. You read Philippians that tr- about the joy that he had in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the joy that was his in all that he did. And yet few people suffered like the Apostle Paul. He probably suffered more than anybody that we can think of in this period of time turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 you kind of get a glimpse of this unguarded the apostle Paul talking he's just kind of writing he's just writing the Corinthians and he kind of goes off and you pick it up here but you listen to what Paul writes about and he starts in verse 23 he says are they servants of Christ I'm out of my mind to talk like this I am more I work much harder been in prison more frequently Been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from the rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger from false brothers. He couldn't go anywhere. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And yet, as you read these words, I think for the Apostle Paul, every scar that he experienced also commemorated a victory for him in his Christian walk and his Christian journey. He suffered. Nobody suffered like the Apostle Paul. And no one needed to hear these words of Romans chapter 8 like the Romans that he's writing to on this occasion because they are about to undergo an incredible persecution that's going to be unleashed on the early church like the world had never seen up to that point. And so the obvious question that the Romans are going to have in their mind is simply this. And we started out Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He went on later in the chapter and says now we have been adopted as sons into the family of God. And he's given us a spirit inside of us that we can cry out, Abba, Father. So the bottom line is if there's no condemnation, if we're now sons, Why am I being punished, right? Why does it seem like God's beating me up? Why am I going through all these things? But Paul reveals in this chapter how that the present groanings are going to ultimately result in God's glory. So I want you to take your outlines out if you have them and turn to the back, they're on your bulletins. Follow along with me this morning. There's three things that the Apostle Paul really brings out and he hammers in the last part of the chapter. First of all is the promise of God. If you don't understand the promise of God, every groaning, every trial, every test you go through will take you under. And you see it in verse number 18. Let me read it to you again. He says there, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. There is a promise of God's glory to be revealed. That day is coming. Let me let you in on a little secret. This world is not our home. This world's not it. This is not all there is. This world is not our home. The Bible says we are aliens and strangers in this world. And when our present sufferings are viewed against the backdrop of God's glory, today's difficulties seem insignificant in comparison. We've distanced ourselves from the groaning like a woman who wants to be anesthetized before she has the baby. I remember when uh, Tanya, we were having our very first child and for some reason the insurance, the, the, the church I was at changed insurance policies and I had no coverage. And so so I'm paying for this thing myself, and you, we have no money starting out, obviously. And she's in the hospital, and so we think, you know, if we go natural, that's going to save the anesthesiologist. And so she's in there, and I'm kind of rooting her on. I'm saying, you can do this, you can do this, you can make it. And you know, I I I, I did the whole thing. Focus, baby, breathe, breathe, breathe. She grabbed my arm, twisting my arms, and you focus, you breathe. And I don't know what I'm doing, and we're in there, and, and, and it's, it's getting about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and the anesthesiologist is about to go off, uh, off duty. And so he comes in, he says, this is your last chance. If you want anesthesiology, you've got to get it now. And he was a Chinese guy, uh, uh, and so he comes in, he says, and so he's he talking about an epidural. That's when they were first kind of coming out then. This is a long time ago. And uh, he says, is that it is the Cadillac of anesthesiology. And I said, what's, what's a Cadillac? You know, I, I, I'm thinking eyes and all that. He's saying Cadillac. It's the Cadillac of anesthesiology. And, I, and so I said, and I, I looked at my, my wife, Tanya, and I said, baby, listen, the Indians, when they had babies, there was no anesthesiology. They would go out into the woods, and they would bite a rag, and they would have that child. And uh, there was a nurse standing there. And she looked at me and says, you go buy the rag. And I, okay, okay, give her the stuff. Give her the good stuff. Uh, So anyway, we, we did it and paid for it somehow. But anyway, he talks about groaning like pain in childbirth. But we want the anesthesia so we don't have to experience the groaning. And as long as we're anesthetized, anesthetized, say that fast, anesthetized by the anesthesiologist, by the comfortable life, if I'm living a good life, if everything's going well, if I have plenty in my bank account, if I'm doing fine, we tend to forget about the glory that God has for us because we start living like this is our home, like I've got all the glory now. And we forget that we are just strangers and aliens passing through. But then all of a sudden crisis hits, disaster hits, we go through a trial or a test like we never anticipated and we start groaning all over again. And we say, God, come quick and get me out of this mess. Paul describes three kinds of groanings. He uses the word groan three times. And, and each one kind of gives us a glimpse on how the groaning happens on the earth that sets us up as first glory. The first one is found in verse 22. He says there, all of creation groans. There's a picture of this world and creation itself and the universe groaning, looking for its redemptions. Our sufferings are not a result of the senseless beatings of God. He's not trying to beat us up. Although the Creator is sovereign over creation, bad things were not His original intention. It's not the way He designed it to happen. He makes the earth, uh, He makes the world, and, and as He made the earth in six days, He says, it is good, it is good, it is good. He made a very good earth that operated together in total harmony with man and His creation. It was a beautiful earth. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, you take gar- care of the garden, you're my stewards over the garden, but some Something begins to happen. And what did he describe in Romans chapter 1? Man exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The lie from Satan was, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. And yet Adam makes this foolish exchange. He exchanges the truth of God for a lie because he thinks he will be like God if he eats of that fruit. He sells his inheritance as the son for bondage into slavery and death. And he opened the door at that moment for death, disease, and disaster to enter the world. So the problems, the earthquakes, the disasters, all that goes on around us is not God's fault. It's our fault. We made that choice through Adam. Uh, a few weeks ago, about a month ago now, the, the, the place shifted in the in the country of Nepal. And so so there's this shifting going on underneath the earth, and buildings start to fall in. And there's an earthquake of about a 7.8 magnitude, uh, and 8,000 Nepalese go into eternity, most of them without the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on? We say, God, we look at the tents all set up, and people starving to death, and them crying over their lost loved ones. And we say, God, how could this happen? It's the earth growing. Groaning, uh, waiting for its redemption, uh, waiting for Jesus Christ to come back and set this world right again. All of creation is groaning. There is a coming day when creation will be restored. The Lord himself will rule as king. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. Uh, There will be no more sin. There will be no more war. There will be no more death. That day is still ahead of us. And until that day, creation groans. Like a mother in labor, waiting for birth, waiting for the birth of the new heavens and the new earth. God's going to design. Then he he says in verse 23, we groan within. We groan. And as a part of God's creation, we experience all that pain as well, and so we groan also. We groan at the tragedy of financial loss. You lose your job. You, 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 You get laid off at work, and you start groaning. Why did this happen to me and how am I going to make it? We, we groan over broken relationships and there are people in here, you've gone through the heartbreak of divorce or separation and, and there's this groaning that goes on. It's like a part of you dies and is being ripped out. We groan. We groan over natural disasters. We, we grow when we get the diagnosis, you've got cancer or you're ill or you've got some other disease in your body and we groan, our body's groaning. We groan at an inevitable death. We groan as the drag of our flesh keeps us from enjoying complete and uninterrupted intimacy with our Creator because we sin and we fail, and that sin creates that barrier between us and God. We are like children in an orphanage waiting with our bags packed, For the complete adoption with our adoption papers in hand, because Christ has redeemed us and we've been adopted as his sons, uh, but we're waiting for Daddy to come back and take us home with him. We groan. Look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Look at that phrase, first fruits of the spirit. Farmers, when they plant seeds into the ground, they, 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 they plant the seeds there, but they've got to wait for the harvest to come up. And so they, they, they toil against the weeds, they're out there pulling the weeds, and they're trying to prepare the soil, and they get all the rocks out, and they take their tiller, and they till the ground up, they get all the rocks out, they, they spray it so pests don't come in and destroy the seed, uh, they, they, they watch the weather, whether it's going to be good or bad, to determine what kind of harvest they're going to have, if there's not enough rain, it's going to be uh, drought time, and, and they're going to have a weak, puny crop, if there's too much rain, it'll wash it away, it won't happen like it needs to, so they just need the right amount of sunshine and the right amount of rain and so they're waiting uh, and they drop those seeds and they work and they wait with no guarantees of what's going to come up. But then that first sign of the yield begins to come out of the ground. And they look at the first crops to come up. And if the quality of the first crops or the first fruits is good, it's a reason for rejoicing because it means they're going to have a good harvest. They're going to have a great crop. They're going to have a great fruit. They're going to have great corn, great wheat, great whatever it is they're growing. Uh, It's going to be a great harvest because the first fruit is good. Look at that verse again. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit fruits of the Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit within me that is guaranteeing what is to come. It's going to be awesome. And so I wait with eager expectation. Look at verses 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? For if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The word hope there is not just kind of like, I hope so, but I have no idea whether it's really going to happen or not. The word hope here can better be defined as an assured expectation. It's an expectancy. While we've been adopted as sons, while I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are still aspects of God's redemption that remain unfulfilled. Because there's going to come a day when I have a new body I am a new man, I will no more be tempted by sin in this world. There will no longer be a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, uh, and that is still unfulfilled and won't be fulfilled until Jesus Christ comes back. And the Bible says when he appears, we shall then be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So that is my hope, that is what I am looking for. But right now, I am citizens living in hostile territory. I'm behind enemy lines, being the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and living for him. And so there's this groaning with expectation, this hope inside of us that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the third thing, person that groans here is the Spirit. Creation groans. I groan within looking for my redemption. Look at verse number 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Now Paul's description of the Spirit's role in prayer is one of the most intimate glimpses of how the Godhead works in our lives even in times of crises. When we are going through it, the Holy Spirit is there. Before Jesus Christ Left the earth. He's going to be, he's going to be carried away. He's, he's warned his disciples, I'm going away, and where I go, you cannot come. And the disciples are saddened. They're thinking about his upcoming death. They're thinking about his departure. What are they going to do? My master's going to be gone. He's not going to be around anymore. But he says, don't be afraid. I am sending to you another comforter who will be with you and who will be in you. He will teach you. He will be a teacher. He will guide you into all truth. He will be your comforter. He also says you will be your your advocate. And the word there for comforter is is the word paraclete. It it means to come alongside of. And so I'm going to send back to you the holy paraclete, the Holy Spirit of God, and he's going to come alongside of you. And he is there, and he's going to endure every suffering we endure. He endures it right along with us. He feels what I feel. When you're tempted to think God's left you in this cruel world to suffer all by yourself and all alone, remember that he too, the Holy Spirit, groans with you. Creation's groaning. You're groaning inside because things aren't right, but he says the Spirit also groans with us. God feels my pain. I'm not alone. He's right there with me. He knows what I'm going through. He groans. He says, with groanings, too deep for words. The mother who sobs over the dead body of a child, the Holy Spirit suffers anguish with you, the man who kisses the cold cheek of his bride gives him to the last time to the mortician. The Holy Spirit feels your desperate ache and your pain, and he feels it right there with you. He groans. He loves us more than we even love ourselves. And therefore, the Bible says the Spirit of God groans with me. He knows what I feel. But the Spirit's groaning is not like ours. We groan within because we've been hit broadside and we're hurting so bad and we feel depressed, discouraged. God, what's going on? But when the Holy Spirit groans, he groans with a purpose. He intercedes, the Bible says, on our behalf. And in those moments when we are struggling, he prays for us with a wisdom I don't even possess. He's groaning with me every step of the way, requesting for us what we are too short-sighted to understand, persevering with us when we're ready to give up. The Spirit is right there beside us, groaning every step of the way. He groans His intercessions to heaven so that our minds and the mind of the Father unite to accomplish His will and His purpose in our life. He groans according to the will of the Heavenly Father. We groan and we cry out, why God? We don't understand it, but the Spirit does. The Spirit groans with us, feels what we feel. And he's going to use all this to accomplish God's divine purposes. There is a, Paul writes about something in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He describes his intercession for the church. And he says there, I, I pray with my understanding, and I will pray with the Spirit. What's he talking about there? In the context of that chapter, he is talking about a prayer language that he intercedes in right along with the will of the Heavenly Father. And how many times do we get ready to pray and we know not how to pray as we ought When the Holy Spirit drops someone in our heart and mind and he's telling us to intercede for that person, but I don't know if that person needs healing or or mending of relationships or just make it through some crisis. I don't know what they need, but God the Father knows. And so it's in those moments I can do what the Apostle Paul talked about. I pray with the Spirit or in the Spirit. I begin to intercede in that heavenly language and, and my whole spirit man inside of me begins to groan. Listen, if you have not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you need that prayer language because it's such an important part of our warfare and our intercessory prayer. And he says, when we pray in the Spirit, we are praying directly according to the mind of God. It is the most powerful praying you can do. Praying when the understanding is okay, but my understanding is limited, my knowledge is limited. But God knows all. Why not let the Spirit of God pray through me? It's powerful, powerful. Pray with my understanding. I pray in the Spirit. He describes it here in Romans 8 as a groaning, the Holy Spirit groaning within me. But he moves quickly on in verse 28 to the purpose of God. And this is where he begins to tie suffering in with God's divine purposes. And we know that all things, in all things, God works for good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, let me share a couple things about suffering with you. First of all, God is not the source of pain. Nor did he promise to prevent suffering. He's not the author of pain and death and heartache and brokenness, but he didn't promise to prevent it either. But he does promise that no pain will go to waste. What the world intends for harm, God will turn around and take that and can ultimately use it for good. And what it accomplishes in us, it will make us more like sons of God. It will give us a creator greater capacity for future blessing. He shares in our suffering uh, so that we can share in his glory. When we endure suffering, our human limitations tend to make matters worse. Now, look at, look at a couple verses, and you've got to get this. This is cru- critical. Look at verse 25. He says there in verse 25, if we hope, We do not yet see, or it says in the NIV, we do not yet have. We do not see. We do not have. We have a limited perspective on the future. We hope, but I do not yet see. Understand? Verse 26, he uses the phrase again, do not So he says, we do not know how to pray as we ought to. Even our requests are short-sighted as well. We're praying to get through the week, and God has a bigger plan and purpose for our lives. So he says, we do not know. We do not know how to pray. We do not have. We do not see. But in verse number 28, he changes the language, and he says, and we know all things. Work together for good. Why do we know that when I don't know these other things? Because my knowledge is based on the character of God. And if God is good, then all things will work out for good. I know because I understand the character of God. God is good all the time. So therefore, I know that even in trial, Even in adversity, even in heartache, even in persecution, it's going to work out for good somehow. Why? Because God is good works together carries the idea of a weaver and he takes it. he begins to weave a pattern and he puts those threads together and if you ever looked at the back of a of a of a, a blanket or something that's being woven you can't figure out what that thing looks like or even look at something before it's finished it looks it looks lousy but when he gets all the colors in and he gets all the pattern in and it all comes together all of a sudden you've got a beautiful rug right That's the way the word there, we know that all things work together. It's like the the master weaver weaving the events and things in your life that's going to bring out God's beautiful, perfect pattern for you. All things, that phrase there was used by the Greeks to, to refer to the universe. It says, we know that all things, it's just like a universal term. And so let me, both seen and unseen work together for good. The good and the bad work together for good. The real and imagined work together for good. Including evil deeds from evil people, even God can use that to work together for good. Good reflects the character of God, it reflects his original created order. God made the world. What did he say after every day of creation? It is good. It is good. It is good. And then he comes down to Romans 8 and 28, and he's talking about this world and creation groaning. But he says, you know what? It's all going to work out for good in the end. And when he restores the universe, it will even be greater and more glorious than his original design in the Garden of Eden. You think Eden was cool. You wait till you see heaven. Hallelujah. But his restoration begins with people. And to accomplish his plans and purposes, even bad things can be woven into the pattern of our lives to accomplish his good. That doesn't mean all things in the world are good. The good, the world is unfair, the world is cruel. The world is brutal. It is shocking. It includes those who are opposed to God. But nevertheless, as the evil tries to destroy, the Lord can even take the world's destruction and turn it into our gain. Hallelujah. All things, everybody say all things. All things work together for good. Hallelujah. And then the third, he ends on this grand crescendo, the divine protection of God. And he starts out in verse number 31 and 32. Now, he he sets this section apart with four questions four very direct questions about the reason for suffering and persecution and opposition. And he's gonna give the answer to every one of these questions. And the Apostle Paul is basing a theological argument that is so strong that by the time you get to Romans chapter eight, you're going, yeah, God! It's really cool. So let's look at these four questions. Number one, he starts out in verse 31 and 32. What What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the question. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, who can be against us? Now, if you just stop right there, You've got plenty of answers. Well, famine can be against me. Persecution can be against me. Sickness can be against me. Hardship can be against me. My flesh can be against me. Fear of loss can be against me. The evil one, my adversary, can be against me. The last enemy, death itself, can be against me. But you don't stop there if God be for us. Who can be against us? What is all those things that attempt to come against us compared to the almighty power of God? And that's what the Apostle Paul says. Now now listen, he, he's going to give proof to his logic here and the proof of this. He says, I've already sacrificed my son for you. I gave up my very best to die on the cross for you. If I did that much for you, how shall I also give you everything you need to make it? I've already paid the ultimate price, Jesus. That's the big thing, redemption. How shall I also freely give you all things to make it through? Can you imagine someone calls you up and says, guess what? I've got great news for you. You have just won a million-dollar diamond necklace. All you got to do is come down to the store and pick it up. Boy, you get down to that store, ladies, and you are so excited, and you put that necklace on, and you're, they're taking pictures, all the, the presses out there, and they're talking about the great prize that you have won, and that you got the, all these diamonds on this necklace, and it's glowing bright, but you don't want to wear it home unless you get mugged on the way, and so you ask the store manager, by the way, can you give me a box to take that home in? And he says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but uh, the necklace was free, but you got to pay for the box. That's ridiculous. No store manager is going to do that. He's not going to give you the very best and then charge you for the box. And that's Paul's logic right here. If God already gave you his very best when he died on the cross, how shall he not take care of everything else? You're worried about groceries. God can handle groceries. He already gave you his son Second question, verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Now, that's a legal question. The word charge carries the idea of to call in, in the, in the uh, Greek language here, to call in. And so what this literally meant, it, it was a summons for a person to appear in court. Okay, it was their subpoena, their summons. Now, suppose you get a summons to appear in court. And maybe it's been a traffic violation. Maybe it's been something you didn't do, and you've been wrongfully accused. It's a frivolous lawsuit. And you're, but, but still, anytime you go to court, you get worried, right? You get anxious. You don't know uh, how goofy those juries are going to be, or you don't know what the judge is going to say or what the judge is going to do. And so there's this anxiousness inside of me because I've got to go to court. I have been called in, it's like getting called into the principal's office. You don't know what you did did something wrong, you're sure of it, but you don't know what it was, and you're called in to see the principal. Well, well, listen, you would have this knot in your stomach, you would be nervous and worried and afraid, but what if, on the other hand, uh, the judge was also your daddy? I got nothing to worry about. Daddy's the judge, he'll get me off, he'll take care of it, fine's been paid, done, paid in full and the bottom line is christ already paid our fine he already took my place he already died and because he already died for me there's a legal term called double jeopardy once the punishment has been paid it cannot be beaded out a second time that would be double jeopardy and that's not allowed in the law and that's not allowed in the universe why because jesus christ already took my place Who can lay any charge against God's elect? Question number three, who is the one who condemns? Verse 34. Now in verse number, Romans 8 and verse 1, we already read, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so look at that verse again. He comes back to condemnation, and he says, and I want to read it to you, because who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died? More than that, who was raised to life? is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, he gives us four credentials to highlight, uh, four things that highlight God's credentials or Christ's credentials. No one can condemn us. Why? Because of who Christ is. Who is Christ? He died for you, number one. He rose again, number two. He ascended on high, number 3 and now where's he at seating at the at the right hand of the heavenly father making intercession for us that's the credentials of my lord and savior jesus christ that's why now there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus look at the progression of paul's logic here and i got to hurry but but notice there and he talks about the father in verse 32, the Father who gave his Son for us, how can he also freely give us all things? He talks about the Son in verse, in verse, the verse I just read to you, verse 34, who paid the price for us, who now holds the title deed to our lives uh, and who's ever interceding for me right now. He talked about the Holy Spirit who lives within us and intercedes through us with groanings that cannot even be uttered. Listen, when I have the triune Godhead working on my side, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, what possibly can come against me? And that's what Paul is saying right there. And so then he concludes with the fourth question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Verse number 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, Paul lists seven things, seven possibilities that can come against us in the natural, that can separate us, so we think, from the love of God. Paul experienced at one time or another every one of those seven things in his own life. And when we suffer affliction of pressure or prejudice or persecution or poverty, it's in those times we wonder, God, do you really care Do you really know what's going on? And we feel abandoned during hardship. Our flesh wants to be comfortable. We love comfort. We want to be comfortable. But we feel abandoned by God during times of hardship. So we associate the blessings of God as God's presence. So if I'm blessed... God must be with me. If I'm going through adversity, God must have taken a vacation or fallen asleep. Right? That's how our flesh responds. Paul answers that. In hardship, persecution, poverty, trial, nakedness, peril, or sword, God is still with us. Nothing will separate us from God. Nothing. And then he quotes from Psalm 44 and verse 22. For your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's reminding the right readers at Romans that trials and persecutions have always been a part of the sheep of God. The sheep have always had heartache. So Romans, you're not alone. Every generation of sheep have been scattered, persecuted, tried in one way or the other. Then he goes and gives the answer again in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In all these things, in every single Christian experience, we are more than conquerors. In that initial elation of emancipation, when I come down and say, Jesus, come into my life, come into my heart, and the chains of sin are broken, and I'm made a new man in Christ, I am more than a conqueror. In my struggles with the flesh that he describes in Romans chapter 7, when it seems like the flesh is warring against the spirit, even in those times in Christ Jesus, I am more than a conqueror. When the world may persecute us in one way or another, one shape or fashion or form, I am still more than a conqueror. Through the joys and the sorrows and the setbacks and triumphs of it all, I am more than a conqueror. Now notice in verse number 36, he says, we are sheep and we've been scattered and we've been persecuted. In verse 37, though, he says, we are more than conquerors. Have you ever pictured in your mind conquering sheep? How can are they fighting sheep? You got the big sheep and you put them in a pen and they fight it out, and you got, oh, this sheep won, yay! Fighting sheep, it's kind of an unusual allusion there. He says in verse 36, we're sheep. In verse 37, he says they are overcoming, conquering sheep. And that's kind of laughable when you think about it. Conquering sheep, fighting sheep. But that's not what he's saying. We conquer, we are sheep, but I conquer because I have Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, but he is also in the book of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who absolutely overcomes everything. The suffering servant of Isaiah is the conquering king of the book of Revelation. And so I am victorious because he won victory for me. Because as a sheep, I wander around, my head's in the ground, and I'm open prey to the wolves. Uh, But as a sheep in the Lord's pasture, uh, I am victorious, I am a conqueror because he leads me to green pastures. Uh, His rod guides me, he protects me. Uh, No harm shall come against me because I am in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And then verse 38 and 39, he concludes this way. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes this to the Romans. The Roman Empire was the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, their kingdom stretched all the way from Britain all the way down to India. They were incredible conquerors. They were incredible builders. They built roads and they built coliseums. They built aqueducts and they built palaces and they built cities and they conquered peoples and they were the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. At the seat of the Roman Empire is the city of Rome. It is the most powerful city on the face of the earth. This is who the letter is going to. Paul writes this in A.D. 57. Keep the date in the back of your mind. But little do they know in A.D. 57 that seven years later in A.D. 64, Nero would do something really stupid. He would set fire to his own city. And he sets fire on July the 19th, AD 64. Fire sweeps through the city of Rome, and for seven days, Rome is burning. It destroys 14 wards of the city. And really, most scholars believe that Nero was kind of it was his own urban, urban renewal project. He wanted, to, he wanted to burn down the slums so he can build his own palace and rebuild the city in his own imaginations. And so he destroys the city. People die in the fire. There's all kinds of loss and heartache. And now the people begin to turn on Nero. So what Nero does is he says the Christians did it. He blames the destruction of the city of Rome on the believers. And now the Roman Empire turns its wrath and its anger on that group of Christians who are now in the city of Rome. And so for the next four years before Nero dies, he impales Christians on stakes. And they take their bodies and they run them down like a popsicle on the back of a a sharp stick. He he, he lined the streets of Rome with believers uh, and he lit them on fire like torches. He took the the Christians and he threw them to the lions and in the Colosseums and they laughed and they ridiculed as the lions devoured and ate up the believers. Peter is martyred and Paul is martyred under the reign of Nero. But who came out as a conqueror? Today the Roman Empire is gone. Only ruins are left. Remnants of a Colosseum, once where Christians were destroyed. But today, the church, over 2 million, 2 billion believers worldwide. Who's a conqueror now? What shall separate me from the love of God? Shall persecution? No. Shall danger? No. Shall sword? No. Not enough to conquer the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I want to tell you, lest we get smug in America today, persecution is coming. Laws are being rewritten today. Churches are going to be challenged down the way in every single matter of the law. I want to tell you the persecution is coming. And whether we talk about the Roman persecution that came, and we know that very well in our minds from history, but I will tell you, you realize today there are more people being killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ every single day than in any time in our history. They're chopping believers' heads off. They're killing them. They're wiping out cities, destroying churches, burning it. More than any other time, the church is going through an incredible persecution. There are thousands, hundreds of martyred Christians every single day, thousands worldwide, today, right now. And Paul writes, says, what shall separate us from the love of God? You stand for the Lord, you're going to be tried and tested. Romans chapter 8 is more than good theology. It's a lesson for us today that I can live free from fear of ever being separated from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from His love regardless of what test may come. I've shared this story before. I'll share it again. I, I was scuba diving with my sons and we had just learned how to scuba dive. but we were down in Florida. And we were going, we were just a shallow dive. It was about 30 feet deep. And we were going down through these caves and coming up. And we got in this little cavern down below. And there was all kinds of divers down there. And, uh, and they said there were four entrances and exits to the cave. And we had found three of them. And I wanted to go down and find that fourth one. And my son looked at me and he says, I'm low on air. Well, it was only a shallow dive I said well let's just go down real quick you got about 500 psi 400 psi we can go down one more time we'll find that opening we'll come back through and we'll make it to the surface and 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 see where we can find it so we all went down there again and uh we looked up and Chad saw what he thought was a hole in the top of the coral and he said I think I found it." he's pointing right there and so so I come over and I said well go on up and I come in and I start to come in behind him and uh as I start to come in behind him, I notice he's not going anywhere, and all of a sudden his fins are kicking radically, erratically, and they're kicking very fast, and, and he's panicking. And, but, I, but it's so narrow, I can't get up there. I can't get to his mask. I can't get my regulator to him. I can't get air to him. There's nothing I can do because the opening was so small, it had actually narrowed the further you got, and he got wedged up between those rocks. And I came back down, and all of a sudden it hit me dude, my 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 son could die right here. I've taken him out diving and I'm taking him out to teach him to dive. And we're gonna have fun. And now I say, let's go back down and dive a little longer, trying to get the last breath of air we have. And he's about to run out of oxygen. And I start praying. And you know what we do? We plead with God and we say, God, save him, do something. And, uh, and, and, and we wait, and Jason's waiting, and I'm waiting. It seemed like an eternity. It might have been just about 65, 70 seconds that we're waiting down at the bottom, not knowing what's going to happen, just watching to make sure his feet are still moving. And all of a sudden, we see Chad. He'd worked himself free. He'd turned his, his turn sideways and got his tank down between those rocks. And he came out, and he didn't look at either one of us. He just darted as fast as he could. He'd actually run out of air. But he was able, he got down in time to swim to the top, that 25, 30 feet up to the top. And uh, we, we, we got on the boat, dive boat, when we finished up. We took our gear off and we set it down. And my son broke down and he began to cry. And I'm crying like a baby. And, you know, you do all that stuff. And so uh, going through all that, and, and it, was, it was later that, that God told me something. He gave me this scripture. Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of God? He says, shall height." or depth. And he said you couldn't get to him but I could. And I was there. And I got him out of there. Because height or depth no other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, I don't know what challenges you're facing today. I don't know what you're going through, what you're experiencing now in your walk. I don't know what sorrow is weighing you down and you're groaning on the inside and it's in these times you don't understand God's purposes and what in the world's going on. I don't know the complexity of your burdens, but God knows everything. God's omniscience. God is not now discovering. He is not learning right now. He is not waiting and going to change his plan or, or adopt pl- his plan on the fly. He knows everything that is going on in your life. And he's working it together and he's weaving it like a tapestry and he is going to bring you through and the final result, the final product is going to be beautiful, glorious, beyond imagination. He gives every purpose to every circumstance in this fallen, corrupted world. He gives it a purpose. Moreover, he loves you completely. And he concludes by saying we are more, more, more than conquerors him who loved us Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages